it's all such a long-term game. Like, don't hope for fast growth. It's just slow and steady. That's the way most startups grow. Like, it seems that they take off and become rocket ships. But no, it's about perseverance and just steady, steady work. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. On this episode, we have a very awesome guest that I've been following for a long time. Her name is Jane Portman, and she's a co-founder of UserList, a four-year-old startup, and she's raised two rounds of funding and host of UI Breakfast podcast, a very popular seven-year-old podcast with over 220 episodes and 2 million plus downloads. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thanks so much, Beck. Excited to be here. And where are you uh, calling from? I'm calling in from Russia, actually. So that's my hometown, uh, a little bit to the south of Moscow. Okay. And you're a mom of three kids as well, right? That is correct. Eight, (laughs) nine, and uh, three. Uh, Wow. Two boys and one little girl. You know, I have to commend you. You, You're a superhuman. When my wife and I, we just babysit our our niece and nephew, eight, eight, eight and five, for like a, a whole afternoon, we're exhausted, like exhausted. I, I usually, I'm, I go to bed pretty late. And then when I, when I babysit them, my wife and I just crash pretty early. <laughs> yeah. It's not like uh, parents don't get exhausted if they do it regularly, you know, uh, yeah, it's just yeah. a matter of getting into a routine, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, you, you have a lot going on. So you, you have your startup, you're, you're doing, you have two podcasts and you're raising three kids. Uh, so, so anyways, uh, I just want to take note and acknowledge how successful you're able to balance and juggle all these things. Thank you. It's, it's nice to swap tables. You know, we've been recording for your interview maybe a week or two ago, and I was equally delighted about the size of the team and the rank <laughs> of the company you manage. So yeah, <laughs> the respect awesome. is mutual. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, on this episode, I was thinking to kind of cover two aspects of your life. You know, on the design podcast, we try to showcase the different paths a designer can take. And, you know, typically, maybe historically in the podcast, I've covered a lot of big companies. So like, yeah, it's, it's aspirational to go great work at a big company, but there are other paths. Uh, recently, we, we interviewed a, a YouTube content creator, a very successful one. And so the episode will be out soon, but that's another path in terms of career path. It, you don't have to just land at a big company to, to, to feel like you've succeeded. Uh, you can start your own company. You, you were a, actually a UI or UX consultant for many years, right? Before you started a, a software product company. That's correct. That's correct. And I'm I'm glad that we're bringing this up because I think throughout my journey, I've been in many places and it's nice to give in retrospective there, like to see, because when I was a little girl and I was starting out the design career, I thought, you know, in order to be a famous designer, you just need to be a good designer. But it, like, it couldn't be more deceptive to think that uh, really. It's not until I started building authority, writing, doing other marketing stuff, essentially, that the audience started to grow and things started evolving, you know, so yeah. happy to discuss this today. Yeah, actually, let's let's take the journey back. What got you interested in design and software design? How did you start that? And then also, you know, how did you fall into consulting? How did you build your uh, client base? And, and what led you to create a SaaS product? So I've been in design since 2000, I think four. Yeah, I was in my 11th grade, it was a summer job in an agency. And uh, I landed at the agency as like a junior designer slash illustrator showing some student design projects. And I stuck with that agency for another, I don't know, six or eight years. And I went through college. It was a part-time job at first. And then I also had multiple side gigs you know, freelancing, building websites on the side, all all kinds of stuff that students do. And, but I stuck with the same agency. And by the time I was uh, 25, I grew into their 
creative director. And it's uh, it's not that hard if you stick with the company for a while. You know, we've, we went through a couple recessions together and ultimately it was me managing a team of a few designers around 10. And, and then I had my first child when I was 25 and I was home on my lawful maternity leave, you know, chilling, <laughs> properly baking pies and doing other stuff. And then I realized that I want to go back to design and I miss work, but I don't want to manage a design team again. I just want to do my best work. Now, I knew I was a good designer. I knew English. So I just ventured out and started looking for work online with, you know, international clients. And that's when, you know, this consulting part of my journey started. And that was 2012. And ever since, I've learned from so many great people online. There's been copy hackers who taught me writing. There's been Nathan Berry who showed how to write books to build authority. There is uh, Patrick McKenzie who showed how to, you know, charge based on value, not on, on the hours you spend. And I was uh, a little bit on Upwork was called Odesk back then. And I was like, nope, I'm going to write my first book and I'm going to quit Upwork for good and not come back anymore. <laughs> there were some good clients, but there were also some, some shady clients there as well. And it's, I still sometimes like fishing for talent there. There is talent, but, but it's really, it, it really is a scary place. So I wrote my first book in the fall of 2013. My second child was born. And, uh, and then it was a journey of just gradually building reputation, uh, building a consulting base, increasing the rate. I jumped on the productized consulting train pretty, pretty early. And back in 2000, what was it? Maybe 14. It was like a hot topic. And there were listing posts describing examples of productized consulting. So I was lucky enough to be one of those examples, which brought a number of clients to my plate. And then I had a collaboration with Envision and I wrote a book for them on fundamental UI design. And then I wrote two more books on my own. One was called the UI audit and another one was on productized consulting again. And it was just a journey of learning and the books themselves were great exercise, but they helped me to build the following. There was also UI Breakfast podcast going on like throughout these years. And uh, the ultimate ambition has always been to have my own SaaS product. And I, I've tried this a few times and it's probably like, it's the second serious attempt and like a numerous not serious attempt. <laughs> and this time I had great co-founders and we've been in for four years. Can't believe it flies so fast, but yeah, here we go. Uh, now I'm full-time co-founder of Fusalist and that's where my brain goes these days. I do some design work for the company, but not for clients anymore. And I'm enjoying it very much. Well, thank you. That, that was a, a long journey there. And uh, I took some notes and I, I thought there were some interesting things. For example, you chose to, you know, after managing a team of 10, you realized, you know, you wanted to still do UX, but instead of, you know, being part of an agency that you wanted to be a consultant. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Maybe like the pros and cons and why did, why you didn't want to be part of an agency or, or maybe you don't like managing people. Like, yeah, tell us about that. I do enjoy... I do enjoy managing people. It's a reasonable task. And of course, it's great <laughs> to have leverage uh, in form of yeah. team. That's not, that's not the point. It's just that I guess I was burnt out by that point a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to, you know, venturing into a foreign market when you're like virtually nobody online, you have zero followers anywhere, you have no friends. It's tough. So you don't usually do that with a team. You just do what you can on your own first, and then you might expand in the future. That's why... Uh, I guess I turned solo. And ultimately, it's rather pleasant to just, just just do your best work instead of having to juggle different communications with, with team members. It's just a different type of work. Yeah, I, I can tell you that in the early days of running my agency, when it was still small, I I did actual design work. I lived in the design tools. At some point, I was critiquing this design and lived in Envision and just leaving comments everywhere. But nowadays, as a 10-year-old company, you know, we, we have a director of operations, we have a head of design, you know, as well as head of engineering. I, I can tell you, I don't do any design work. You know, like my last code commit was like, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. So I... 
you know, if someone's looking to be like a hands-on practitioner, you know, as you grow within a bigger company, you, you may less, you may find yourself in a track that's less technical, right? Less, less hands-on and more managerial. And my, now my skill set or my things I do is more like team building, vision, marketing, sales, BD, and yeah, very, very little, very Anything little design. Anything but design. <laughs> Anything very little, but design. <laughs> exactly. Whereas some, some of the people my age who have chosen not to, not to pursue a career, like building a company and, and they just still freelance as a consultant, a design consultant, I think they're, they're very much, you know, somewhat very technical and still, still hands-on. So that's like a different career path as well. There is also the financial aspect to discuss there because the money earned when you run an agency, this margin that you have, it might be even smaller sometimes than, than the money you can make while being a high value solo consultant. And it's, it's hell of a lot of stress too, like, and responsibility running the payroll and everything. And really the only, of course, there is a reason why we do that, why we work on SaaS companies or agencies. That's because you have leverage and then you have, you're building assets in addition to just having money coming in. That's a different story. That's why we're doing it to be independent and to create global value as a in addition to like everyday salary. Yeah, there is a lot of we're living on the table. Um, there's just a handful of people who have gone this route of being a high value practitioner and growing a small team just to support themselves. Everybody else is either going in, in info products, scaling that way, or going in SaaS or building an agency like yourself or raising prices to and, and and hiring a little team to support yourself. I guess these are the roots. You always want to grow. Right, right. There's there's multiple ways to grow, right? One is just raising your rates. I think there's definitely pros and cons of having being solo and and, and growing a company like mine. As you mentioned, there's there's leverage, right? The pro is the more people I have working for me, the more I I'm charging, right? Because as a human, maybe I can even at my busiest, I was probably working 80 hour weeks, which is way too much. I was just like Ooh. working myself to death, but I was charging a lot, but, and I was, it was all mine to keep, but you know, it was a job, right? I had multiple clients and I, and you can only do that for so long. And you mentioned like, how do you, you, you can never, there's nothing to sell or acquire, right? Like the best you can do is maybe get a job somewhere there right? But if you, you build a company, potentially, if I wanted to one day, I, I could sell this company as an asset I can sell. So that's, that's like one pro, you know, whether it's a product, right? Or an agency, service agency, or a SaaS, like, you know, or info product. There's actually one more route we forgot to mention here is uh, training. So like flying around the world, giving workshops and team training and stuff like that, which um, I also did make an attempt to uh, to do but quickly realized that it traveling around it's not the biggest pleasure as soon as you do this like 50 times a year well i didn't try 50 but it was obvious that it's not the route to go and just doing it remotely didn't sound great i tried a couple of remote workshops and it was just exhausting <laughs> to yeah. to do this because it's a different level of engagement that you get in person versus uh, digital so I think people have gotten better at this now that we've through we've been through two years of, <laughs> of practice, but <laughs> but it's still different dynamics. Yeah, and I would categorize myself pre-COVID as a I call myself a traveling salesman, right? Mm -hmm. I'll fly out to a potentially big client, or I fly out to different conferences to meet with prospect clients, probably at a rate of maybe one every other week. So it felt like I was always, you know, maybe like there was a, either a conference or a client I could go see. So it was a lot. And, uh, but I, I think my, you know, after with COVID and I have now I have zero travel, it's like the complete opposite, but I think, you know, if I, my life would be different where I don't think I would be as willing to travel if I had kids, you know, I, that it's just would be a challenge. Like, sure. I could leave them with my wife, but I think that would be a little unfair. So I think my, 
my propensity for travel or appetite for travel. Like if, if, if we, because I didn't, we didn't have kids. So I could kind of like, okay, well, she's, it's just fine. You know, if I'm gone for a couple of days, but I think it'd be unfair if I did this on a regular cadence, like every other week. Yeah. And uh, being a mom, we do have nannies and babysitters. And without that, I wouldn't be able to juggle whatever you described, yeah. Uh, but yeah, going away is a different story for a woman versus a man, because like my husband is always traveling, but I'm supposed to be the one who is keeping the lights on in the house. And if I leave, that's going to, that's going to be a challenge. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it's probably going to be fine for a few times, but not for the whole year. Yeah. Uh, tell us about productized consulting. So for people who have never heard of that term, what does that mean? And uh, in concrete terms, what did you offer as a productized consultant services? Productized consulting is a way of selling your consulting services as um, predefined packages with a specific price and specific um, deliverables and specific rules. Basically, you just uh, shape what you do into something that is easier to buy, easier to understand, and you have sort of a menu on your site. And of course, there is always bespoke work on the upper uh, end of this, but there are some lower lower price, obvious engagements that make you easier for people to hire. And um, it's not just consultants who are struggling to find clients. It's also clients being uh, intimidated by consultants because you see somebody high profile you don't know maybe you talk to them on a call and they're going to charge you 5k or something so it makes you more approachable it displays part of your progress makes it more clear and there's like it's it's a win-win for everybody to productize part of that and the book i wrote a few years ago was pretty it's like a paint by numbers a little guide that shows you how to exactly find parts of your service that are more scalable and uh, try and turn this into a consulting menu. In my old years, I did a service that was called Correlation and was creative direction for SaaS companies, a nice monthly fee. And I had three to five clients every month and I did like a chunk of work that came back came back to them the next month and I do another chunk of work. And um, it worked great. It was a reliable stream of work, basically the dream. There, there are mistakes you can run into easily. And uh, one is overbooking yourself because you always need to leave some margin in case an exciting one-off project comes along or in case in my in my year 2015 I I had this book offer from Envision that I couldn't resist so I had these recurring clients uh, I had a consulting project from Joanna Weeb which I couldn't turn down because she's a celebrity and also downright awesome and I had a book to write and I just like really burnt out that year. So I took a break and my husband was telling me like, look, you have this brilliant recurring revenue. What are you doing, Jane? And I was like, well, but I, I just can't. And yeah, I wrapped up that monthly service. And since then, I've always leaned towards some sort of products supplementing my income and just slowly shifting to, to SaaS. Yeah, I, I think you, you're... I, I frankly am enamored of that path, selling hours all the time. I mean, 10 years plus because I, before impeccable, I always freelance as well. So even at a time when I had a full-time job elsewhere, I always had a, a company, a holding company where I would take side gigs and side hustles. And, you know, somebody had a small project, small, small SaaS, and I could work on it after hours. I, I did that. So it's a great way to build your experience and portfolio outside of opportunities that maybe your day job doesn't provide. But the point I'm trying to make is I think it's, you're always trading money for time. And what you're trying to do here is you're trying to create products that basically disconnect your, your value versus your time, right? So like people can buy your books, you can sell, you know, if it's print on demand or it's eBooks, you can sell an infinite number and and not be capped by your time versus, you know, having a, a software agency, you're capped by how many bodies you have who and how many hours they can work realistically, which is less than 40 a week. So yeah, you're, it's, it's, it's a challenge and it's a, it's a cap. And I, I, I like what you're doing. And part of why we're having this conversation is so that I can learn, learn from you. Tell me about, you've written so many books now. So if somebody wanted 
if you know an enterprising young agency owner, not so young anymore, wanted to write a book, <laughs> what are the steps that you would recommend? What's what's the workflow or process? Oh, <laughs> oh well, in my in my days, I used uh, Nathan Berry's book called uh, Thirty, and he mm. uh, specifically he's a great marketer. So he outlines not just how to write the book, and writing the body of the book is not hard. But building the audience about it, around it, planning for the launch, trying like planning for some marketing around it. And I think it had all the great stuff you need, except for one missing component, which was how to write useful books. <laughs> uh, so like my first book was complete flop in that regard. And uh, only after that, I got acquainted with Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman, Hillman's uh, Stacking the Bricks and sales safari process that they recommend, which is basically digging public forums and stuff for pain points and uh, writing about what people need. And also Rob Fitzpatrick has recently published a book, which, which is called How to Write Useful Books. I have not read it, but I, I am very sure there is good stuff inside. <laughs> uh, you know what? It's... It's almost same thing with like, I see a lot of similarities with just owning a business, right? Like a design business, you're doing everything but design. There's so many, right? Writing a book, writing it, and the content itself is just a small thing, right? You have to build the audience and you have to find the pain points. You build your lists and so on. Like when you have a business, a service business, Sure, the craft of that business is important, but there's also so many. I, I can tell you probably I spent a good chunk of my time developing new business, maintaining existing relationships, trying to get them to renew and increase spend, recruiting, <laughs> you know, making sure you attract great people. Everything but design, right? <laughs> talking about design, talking a lot about design, talking about our work, talking about why you should join the company. Yeah. So it's it's I think it's it's fair and easy to see that. You know, writing a book is not about writing a book. Man, that's that's a big one piece of it. <laughs> it's also not about money. Yeah. You you made it sound like it's uh, books are in their own way to make money. Your first book is very unlikely to make money, and so, <laughs> so the second and maybe the third is because if you do the traditional publishing route, maybe you will make good advance. But generally speaking, the traditional publishing route it's more complicated it's 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 a longer process and you're just doing this for publicity because it's definitely not for the money it's not even comparable to the money you can make consulting it's just about building authority but even if you do a self-published book just having it in your mental portfolio on your site or in your head helps you play in a different league you're mm -hmm. now you can call yourself an author do other things and I used to leverage it a ton when I was negotiating with potential clients. And instead of sending my resume, I would, I would tell them that like, here's yeah, yeah, books. a free copy <laughs> of the book or something. And that's a completely different conversation. And it's also proof that you can, you can do some serious projects and you can ship them and polish yeah. them and, and market them. And that's a whole different set of skills. Yeah. Yeah. No, for, for sure. You know, you rattled off a lot of famous names, Patrick Muscanzi, Joanne Weeby, Amy Hoyt. You're awfully very well connected. That's a really useful skill. Tell me more about that. How, how do you network? How do you think about networking? How do you build all these great, amazing contacts? What you mentioned, I did not like, they were not my friends at the time I learned from them. They were like stars up there. And of course, I'm very lucky to, to know them right now, but it's mostly been a journey of, you know, going to some level, then maybe going to a conference, meeting some of them personally. Conferences have been great. I miss them so bad. Yeah, going to conferences is a great way. And uh, building a podcast has been a great way to just make connections. But I've never really used the term networking. Among other marketing methods, podcasting is my favorite because it's it's win-wins all around. You get to enjoy a nice conversation with people, get to connect on a personal level, you get to ask them interesting questions and discuss interesting topics. And then you share all of that to the benefit of your audience and um, to help them expand their audience. So it's just, it's just exciting all around. Therefore, when you reach out to anybody for an interview, the chances are very high they're going to say yes. 
it, maybe if you try to reach to uh, like Mark Zuckerberg or somebody, somebody sure. th- th- that's not going to be a success. But, you know, some people that are just mere mortals will probably say yes. And that's a great <laughs> way to, to get things going. Yeah, especially a, a seven-year-old podcast with even, you know, with 200 plus episodes. I, you know, I'm probably what, 35, 36 episodes and the fact that it's been around for almost a year now, even that has, has, I'm telling you, you know, from my personal experience that it has power, right. In terms of introductions and stuff, I think it's for me, I don't see it as a, maybe I went into this thinking there's monetization. So I'd love to ask, like, how long did it, I'm sure you have sponsors for the UI Breakfast podcast. And how long did mm-hmm. that take to, to get before you got some sponsorship? I got first sponsors maybe in 2017, probably. And um, my friend Kurt Alster at a conference, I was like, I'd love to get started with sponsorships. Like, it's it's decent numbers. Like, how do I do that? He, he's like, you just start. Mm. And that's what you do. You put up a sales page for this, put out some stats, <laughs> yeah. and you maybe you can strike a deal with somebody, or you can run sponsorship for a couple of your friends. And since it's naturally distributed to some audience, and they hear about your sponsorships, we have this link. Like, would you like to sponsor us yeah. on each episode? That's how it grew. Like, we don't sell out one hundred percent, but it's fairly close, and. Um, also, don't be afraid to raise your prices because yeah. if you've talking to sponsors is an overhead logistically because you have to, you know, organize, accept payments and stuff. So if you're sold out 100%, the obvious way out is to raise your prices and get more money for less, sure. less communications. And sure thing, there are people who run multiple podcasts and they sponsorships are their primary source of income. I don't want to go that route because actively forging for sponsorships, it's it's a pretty miserable activity. I don't want to spend my days this way, but but the way they come in inbound, that's totally doable. So we do that. Yeah. yeah. So so that tells me I should put up a, a sponsorship page on the on the podcast uh, so that, you know, but but you also kind of gave me some ideas on terms of like maybe I should maybe reach out to some some close networks and see if they'd like like to just start sponsoring even, you know, smaller you startups and stuff like that. Give away the first few for free for your friends. Nobody will know mm-hmm. um, as a favor. Right. And like I keep doing it occasionally for my friends, but the idea is that the people will hear the hear format. It. They will yeah. hear the format and think, oh, I could be there. And they will start looking for the link, that link to the sales page you mentioned. That's a great idea. So just, just give away the sponsorship. Uh, okay. Great. Yeah, I, I started actually, you know, I, I went in just thinking like, oh, you know, I'd love for this to be like its own thing. But now, you know, whatever, 30 plus episodes in, I see it as very complimentary to my design agency. And, you know, it's a great way to network, like you said, build build more, more connections. Very, you know, I, I've been able to get through the door of some of these uh, big companies that normally I think if I came knocking as a vendor, right? Hey, I have something to sell you. Would you like to buy my design services? They, they probably say no thanks. And, but hey, I'd love to interview you for my podcast. Actually, I... I I love featuring, you know, more women, more minority, more BIPOC, you know, more diversity. And people love that. Like they, I'm not trying to do that because it's most people, you know, it's, it's the trendy thing to do. I, I'm trying to do that because when I started it, I, I didn't see many women. I didn't see many, you know, Asians, you know, in the industry. So I wanted to feature more of them. Right? A lot of the famous people you, you mentioned, you know, they're, they're typically white, white Americans, right? Famous designers. So I wanted to feature more, more minorities. And so that's been kind of the mission or people who don't necessarily are in the Bay Area and, and are famous that way. Yeah. There are so many ways to make that happen. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a great tool. Yeah, I I would say I've had the home like advantage in terms of location, right? Like we Impeccable was in the Bay Area. So we were driving distance from a lot of big tech companies. So you're a designer working out of Russia. You, you even mentioned using Odesk and Upwork, which which I'm very familiar with. The podcast, how else kind of did you build 
your network and and have you know good clients and and build a did you, I'm assuming you had some clients in the US as well at some point and and Western Europe and, and big clients big brand names I definitely had most of the clients in the US from uh, from day one and I only spent less than a year in upwork before mm. quitting it ultimately I made friends with some of my clients and one of them sort of mentored me into good copywriting. And the way it went, I put up my first consulting website and then he said, well, Jane, your copy is really bad. I'm like, why? <laughs> I don't see any mistakes. And he's like, no, just you should study business copywriting, go find uh, copy hackers and download all Joanna's books. And that's what I did. That was one of the segues. And just literally everybody at that time had something, some learning materials. So you just find somebody in the ecosystem. It's like a little tail and you untangle it. You find other authorities, you read what they do. And people used to blog more. I think they used to write more these days. It feels like the ecosystem has shifted into everybody running their own startup SaaS product. But those days there was so much to learn. So I guess one of the one of the tips is to not be afraid to invest into your education because that's where it all starts. And just paying some dollars here and there for a book or a little course. And if you if at that time you would translate that into Russian money, that would be pretty insane. But it's like, I don't know, $200 for a course, you know, stuff like that. But it is really an investment in, in your education. So do that. Yeah, I... I... I can totally agree. I buy a lot of books and I read a lot of books and and now they've kind of turned into audiobooks. But yeah, people, you know, don't think too much about spending a ton of money into higher education like an MBA or grad school. But, you know, when it comes to stuff like this, it you, you can level yourself up so much by being a better writer, being the better storyteller, you know, being a better communicator. I think that comes up a lot in terms of Like as you level up, right, you have to, I think for both a founder, an entrepreneur, a CEO, a leader, you know, communication skills is so important. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And things like in 2014, in April, we just bought BikerConf tickets and flew to Las Vegas, Nevada with a six-month-old second child. <laughs> and it was such a wild adventure, but I met so many awesome people there not for networking per se, but they, a lot of them became friends and that's much easier than to strike some other relationships, mastermind groups, collaborations, anything. If you met the person line, it kind of proves that they're human and they exist, you know, in real life. Yeah. Net networking gets a, a dirty rap, but you know, when I think of networking, it's just like meeting people, it's just, let's call it what it is, meeting new people instead of calling it network or like When people say, oh, I, I hate sales. It's so sleazy. It's like, well, I don't really sell anything. I just talk about our work. Here's what we do. And here's what we, we've done for a similar client. I'm not really like, this is either something you need or you don't. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. I want to, I want to mention that it feels like everybody's a designer these days. There are so many designers, so many developers, but it's still hard to find a good designer and it's still hard to find a good developer. There's always place for good, responsible professionals. So just go up there and, and do it. Absolutely. I want to shift topics to you as Jane, as the founder, co-founder of UserList. So how has your role shifted? So now that you're more of a co-founder, you know, what's the mental mind shift You know, if designers want to be entrepreneurs, be startup founders, what what do they need to think about other than obviously the design of the product and the user experience of the product? Startups is all about marketing. Like <laughs> we started out as a team of three. That was me doing design and product. Claire was our marketing co-founder and Benedict was our technical co-founder. Claire then left after about a year in and I just I've just been doing marketing all in hands-on building a team helping me with marketing more marketing and more marketing to come basically and the design work itself it's just a mere fraction of what what I do for UserList. 
And just generally speaking, the split between effort of designers and developers in a product, it's enormous. Like a few hours of design work can fuel development effort for weeks. So it's really, it's really why you don't really need a design co-founder. Like having a design co-founder like we, we do is a big benefit because you can you can do cool stuff like a nice website and uh, it, everything is so stylish and nice. But overall, I think any startup can do well by just having a design contractor here and there. And just overall, the influence of design is overrated, really. Good design cannot rescue business. Good design cannot um, ensure product market fit. It can, of course, make the experience nicer. It can communicate quality, can communicate trust, can make it enjoyable. But if it the product is not solving uh, the problem and if nobody hears about it, if there is no marketing, that's not going to rescue it at all. So the role of design, unfortunately, is not as great as designers think. and I'm Not as great <laughs> as I thought before. Yeah. I mean, just reflecting my own experience from my own agency, you know, we, we get a lot of startups that have found product market fit. Maybe like the typical team is like four engineering co-founders or three engineering co-founders, and they were able to cobble together something. It worked, it solved the problem. It's horribly designed, not well thought out in terms of the user experience, but they had real paying customers. They even at many times secured funding. We wouldn't even work with them. You know, we're, we're at the stage where we, we wouldn't even work with a startup that doesn't have funding. But a lot of times that's when they come to us and like, okay, we've gone far enough. We've gotten funding. Yeah, the user experience sucks. You know, we've heard it firsthand from our customers or maybe competitors. So then you're right. Then design comes in later. And, and the fact that they haven't brought it in-house, they come to an agency means that they don't, it's not so critical that they needed to bring it in-house, right? They just like... It's, <laughs> it's interesting. In my consulting days, uh, I was capable of producing design, which was like on, on the quality of funded companies, but it was not, I, I've never secured a funded company as a client it's always been more or less bootstrapped companies, just more of a fit to work with individual contractors. And I guess it's a pattern that funded companies just go for agencies uh, to make it a secure choice. Oh, not always. So it really depends. A lot of them are sometimes their request is like, hey, I just need a designer. You know, they think of us as a staff hog and, and, and we tell them, no, we don't really do that because we'd like to <laughs> pair senior designers with junior designers and, and whatnot. And people do have their specializations. You know, a really strong visual designer might not be a great, the best UX designer. That's what. That's why you know we have extreme specialists. So so we work as a team, right? So some if an age if a startup wants a generalist or like a little bit of branding, a little bit of UX, a little bit of visual, that's not a really good fit for us. So I think you know whether you're startup funded or not funded. You have to know what your needs are and identify whether that agency is a good fit, right? Whether it's, you know, do they do staff hog? Do, you know, do you want a generalist? Do you want specialists? What, what is your pain? And try to solve for that. So, yeah, did, and you, you did, I like your, your insight of like a designer can create so much. And then just from my own data point, right? Sometimes we, we have like a, a designer paired with a front end and a back end. Sometimes the ratio is one to three, like three engineers to one designer. We've even, I've even encountered ratios. Like when you get to bigger IT shops, like big, bigger outsourcing companies, you might even end up with like a ratio of like one designer to a hundred engineers. <laughs> That's on the extreme side. I wouldn't exclude that. Yeah. In those uh, days when I ran that monthly service for SaaS companies, I would come in for like three days of work every month and I would very quickly get get ahead of their roadmap so they would not catch up on the development <laughs> side. I didn't go very far into that because I wrapped up the, uh, the shop in that regard, but it was definitely obvious that uh, designers just, I mean, design work and development work ratio is like you mentioned, yeah. very dramatic. You, you, and, and a good designer can create even more leverage. So for example, some of our work has been in creating, before we even do design work, we create a design system. And speaking of productized services, we've, we've kind of productized you know, the offerings of design systems. So we have like a small, medium, large package. So, so 
you know, I highly recommend making something that's digestible and lowering the barrier to, to buying from you. But in creating good design systems, you just now go from, so like one client, they have their own designers too, but with a really well-made design system, not only are we helping them create designs faster, we're also helping their team move faster, their team of own designers. Now they assemble stuff using the yeah. design system. There is uh, there's one aspect of product work that is like completely over overlooked. And that is a designer working together with a front-end developer and troubleshooting little details and polishing the UI so that it looks and feels exactly as they intended. And that can be as much work as you want to invest. Like seriously, when we polish something new, like a new feature or a new component in the UI, can go like 50, 100 little fixes like here, there. And Benedict, He's great at this. He's not even like, a, he's absolutely not a sloppy developer. It's just a design. I can notice little things that other people don't see. And the compounding result is some of those little things. If it's sloppy in different places, it will look sloppy altogether. But then when you polish that for a component and you reuse it across as in a design library, that's where real leverage appears. Okay, how so you wear multiple hats and you have many considerations. So how do you balance that? You know, you're I would call it the OCD of a designer with kind of the practicality and the budget constraints of the entrepreneur Jane, right? Like yeah, the, the the answer is that we don't build new components that fast. We we oh that often we like we would do that polishing process, but it only happens like once every couple of months or something, you know, and everything else is more of a scalable. Like we have systems in place that allow Benedict to build new stuff using what we already have and what we already polished. Of course, it's not like 100% perfect, but it definitely gets the job done. Yeah. For, uh, for designers who want to become entrepreneurs or who have their own startup ideas, you've bootstrapped this for a while kind of paint us a, a real picture of kind of your, your startup journey. And you've only recently raised funding as well. So maybe also talk about kind of the fundraising process as well. There are so many flavors of money you can get these days. You can, <laughs> uh, you can absolutely bootstrap. You can join an accelerator and get a little bit of cash to fuel your early efforts. You can get like a big VC check early on. The way we went around it was not like super straightforward, but we started four years ago. Then um, two years in, we raised a little round from Tiny Seed, which is an accelerator run by Rob Walling, the founder of MicroConf and uh, Drip, just basically in our ecosystem. So that gave us a little bit of runway. And this year we raised another round from 22 angel investors. And that gives us a little bit of runway to expand our team and to fuel some growth. And it does not, it might look like a linear journey, but there were a lot of doubts in terms of like what product market fit looks like. And it only, only this year, I think we had real clarity about what our audience really needs. And we added a couple of features to our play that make us stand out from the competitors. One of them in spring was company accounts. And just to explain a bit, most email software thinks about um, their audience in terms of individual users, even though SaaS companies serve teams. So UserList allows for Many, many relation, many to many relationships between companies' accounts. So instead of just opening up your user list account and seeing three thousand of humans, you can see that these three thousand humans represent like one hundred and twenty-four accounts, and you can segment accounts and you can track account activity and do other cool things. So that was what what we added this year. And uh, a few months ago, we added marketing email to the table. So now our customers can handle both marketing and customer email in one tool. So with this in mind, I think we really match our customers' needs and we're ready to put um, fuel on that fire. And that's what the angel round is supposed to do. Okay. I actually totally forgot to even ask about, this is horrible, but what, what is user list? <laughs> we, we talked about ah. you as a journey and you as a founder, but like, what the heck, what the heck is user list? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an email marketing tool for SaaS companies. 
And if you think about, you know, an email tool for bloggers, ConvertKit comes to mind. An email tool for um, e-commerce is Klaviyo, however you pronounce it. And we want to be the same choice, but for SaaS. And we focus exclusively on SaaS. And therefore, we can serve their needs really well. And that's what we've been doing up to this date. So it's email marketing, not transactional emails, right? It's email marketing and lifecycle email. Ah, we started awesome. with lifecycle, then added marketing, and it probably will add transactional as well. And there are so many great, like, because legally, email falls into marketing and transactional. Mm-hmm. While in fact, transactional email is what we mean by a lifecycle. Right. That's what I meant. It's, it's life cycle. Um, yeah. So, so your niche, so that way I think you, 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 you come up, you can help a SaaS company because you, you've already served so many SaaS companies. If anything, you can kind of help teach a SaaS company how to get engagement, right? Like, yeah, through, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe for the SaaS founders listening, what are some of the <laughs> maybe events or life cycle things that you should be engaging with their customers? The biggest problem we see with our users as well, they come in, they set up some behavior tracking, they set up a basic onboarding campaign and they're like, we're done. We have lifecycle email. But there's so much more you can be doing with your with your user list throughout their life cycle. And after some time, they become your loyal customers. You can ask them for anything. You can ask them for reviews. You can automate customer success engagements and opportunities like, you know, get together with the customer success manager after every six months to do something. You can auto- totally automate that. You can ask them to, to for a referral. You can run surveys. You can identify upgrade opportunities. You can upgrade them to annual. You can upgrade them to different plans. You can identify churn risks and reach out to them proactively. This is a ton of stuff you can do. Nobody does it. I swear. Like uh, (laughs) even big companies, you'd be amazed. We don't want to like black talk them, but seriously, this stuff is pretty intimidating. Even for some serious companies, you would see that they only do basic onboarding and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can already think of some startups I, I would recommend <laughs> uh, user list to then. So so thank you for that. Actually, let me kind of pause here. And then is there maybe like, do you want to do like a, a referral code, a special discount for this podcast or something like that? Um, like coupon code PEC for, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. If they mentioned uh, PEC 300, we will give them $300 in credit. Uh, oh, okay. So they, they just start a free trial and let us know through support. Sounds great. So let's let's do that. Is there any special offers you, we can do for our audience listening in if they're startup founders and want to try out user list? Absolutely. If you just mentioned promo code PEC300, I mentioned that to our support team, we will credit your account with $300, which should fuel your um, runway for a couple months. So amazing. Thank you so much. As we end, you know, on the hour here, what are some resources? You recommend? I know, like I picked up Nathan Berry's book. Pretty much anything by Joanna Weeby's Copy Hackers. Of yeah. course, we'll link to all your books. But uh, are there any other resources? Uh, and you, um, the UI Breakfast podcast, of course. Stacking <laughs> the Bricks by Emmy uh, Hoy and Alex Hillman is a great framework for creating useful products, and that relates both to uh, info products and software. So, yeah. just helps you to identify needs instead of just thinking in a vacuum which everybody's doing basically everybody's how to find new ideas but you don't just find ideas you research for them and that's what you should be doing sure sure i know i i think for me in the past the curse has been like the only successful thing i've built so far in my life is is impeccable which is a service company because the need is there. Uh, I happen to be in Silicon Valley. They actually care about UX and they can afford it. But the, the curse of being a designer developer is if you had a thought rather than validating it, you just start making it. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, now my advice is go get some customers, go talk to people that, you know, see if what you have in your mind aligns with kind of what people actually have problems with. I'm glad that you brought that up because The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick is an amazing book and you should totally read that before speaking a word to anybody. 
Because what the way we do social interactions, it's just full of bias and uh, people pleasing. They're not going to tell you the truth if you don't ask the right questions. So, yeah, I, plus one on mom tests. I've actually read it twice. Uh, some books, you know, I, I try to reread because I, I haven't read in a long time. But yeah, mom test is a it's a great book that I recommend as well. Uh, the gist of it is don't talk about your product at all. Just just ask people about their problems. Observe. 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 And if your problem, the, the problem that your product solves doesn't even come up, then maybe it's not even a big enough problem. <laughs> yes. My favorite angle is that you need to zoom out from, from the specific problem you're solving and look at what is happening in their world and how large of the stance that particular aspect is, is taking there. Because right. if they don't care, like if they don't care about fitness at all, if they live between the bar and work, like, how would you sell your fitness? Uh, I don't know what fitness gear to them, even right. if it look, if it's useful, it's not just the right fit. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, product founder has to meet the market and make sure that that's a fit. If not, find, yep. find a different market. <laughs> yeah. And if anything, it's all such a long-term game, like don't hope for fast growth. It's just slow and steady. And that's the way most startups grow. Like it seems that they take off and become rocket ships, but no, it's about perseverance and just steady, steady work. Right. And, and lots of big companies that you've seen have pivoted to something else. Like Twitter was a pivot from a podcasting platform. Pinterest was a bookmarking tool, like a, a different, like an internal tool. Slack was the, the founders who were creating a game. And it was like Stuart Butterford was uh, actually second game. His first game pivoted into Flickr. <laughs> so, Good gaming. No? <laughs> so, so, so invest in his next game is what I'm saying. But everything is, you, you, is, is seldom the first thing you hit it. Very few people hit it right on the mark. My friend's company actually started as a DNA testing kit. And he's doing really well now in COVID because he pivoted to COVID testing kits. <laughs> and that's right. like now huge, huge growth. So I think, you know, if, if I guess my advice is just listen to the market and don't be afraid to tweak your idea to, yeah. to meet the market. I, I, I do have a tattoo on my wrist for a year by now. It says BDTP, better done than perfect. And that stands for basically just, just do it and then learn by doing, because that's what you do. You take controlled risks and you learn all the time. Yep. Yeah, not, never, never stop learning, get, get feedback and recalibrate. Thank you, thank you so much, Jane, for, for your hour and uh, really appreciate all your, your insight and advice that I, I'm taking to heart. So this has been a really wonderful interview for me and hopefully for the audience. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Peg. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one. <laughs>